I'm Eric Barocco, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Well, hello, Ben. Howdy. Howdy-do. Howdy-do to you, too. <laughs> How's it going? Are you ready for another fine episode of the Cinematography Podcast? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm wearing uh, I'm wearing my special podcasting cod piece and everything. Wow, look at you. Yeah. Ain't nothing getting in there. <laughs> it's your chastity belt. Yeah. Of podcasting. So, Ilya, who do we have on the show today? Oh, we have the fantastic Eric Bronco returning for the second time. Uh, delighted to have him on to speak about his uh, new television series, Let the Right One In, currently available on Showtime. You should totally it's go. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Have you been watching it? Uh, yes, yes, I have been watching it. And uh, you should know that Let the Right One In might be like one of my favorite movies of the last 30 years. And when I heard that they were doing a series about it, like you do a lot of times when someone's... You cringe. D- you're like, what What else needs to be said? You know, like there was a perfectly cromulent movie uh, version of it made in America called Let Me In, which is actually the direct translation of the novel it's based on, the, the title of it. And I remember seeing it and being like, this is, all, this is good. If I hadn't seen the Swedish version, I, I might love this. <laughs> but the Swedish version looms so large. It's like, uh, yeah, it's good. you know. It's like when you hear about people remaking uh, Suspiria. Like you go, like, well, why not just go ahead and remake Blue Velvet? Like, why why would you remake something that was just done so perfectly the first time? So, what's interesting about the TV series is it's kind of just extending the world out, and it does it in a very clever way. I I, I was very impressed with it, and I think it looks good in a, in a look that throws back to the movie without being restricted to the palette of the movie. If that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it, it enlarges the world, and I think it does it in a fun and incredible way. And I don't want to say too much about it, because we talk about it at length in just a moment. So, But first, Ben, uh, we should get to our close focus. Oh, uh, man. What do we have to talk about for close well, focus today? I mean, like, oh, God. I mean, like, we're heading into award season, and we're going to have all kinds of great stuff to talk about. But I feel like we would re- be remiss to not mention the situation with Kanye West. Yay. Which, which is, yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. Isn't there always a situation with Kanye? Isn't that kind of like the, the rule? Yes, but I feel like this is the one he doesn't come back from, Ooh. or at least not in the same, like, he doesn't need to come back. He's a billionaire. Yeah. Like, he, he can do whatever he wants for the rest of his life. He's he's fine. He could quit tomorrow. And, like, I have to cop to being not the most rabid Kanye fan, but, you know, back when we bought albums instead of streaming albums, mm-hmm. I bought a few of his albums. I liked his music. I, I liked some of his collaborations with people like Jay-Z. I really thought he was pretty good. And Less uh, so today, I, huh? <laughs> well, it's, no one can see Ben's face, but Ben's eyes just basically bugged out of his head when I when I asked him that question. So, so well, it's so, it's nuts because he's just going on this tear of anti-Semitism and just doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. And the news, as we're recording this today, is uh, he he was repped by CAA and they dropped him. Which, like, yeah. imagine being an agency dropping a client who makes a billion dollars or who's worth a billion dollars. You're just kissing off. Uh, probably tens of millions of dollars a year. And it's because of the horrible anti-Semitic comments that he made. And it's not just that. It's like he's just making these weird moves. And the thing is, like, I partly feel just bad for him because we all know that he suffers with, uh, I believe it's bipolar Mm. disorder. I don't know. I know that he has a history of mental illness and I want to have compassion for him. And I do think he's a pretty good recording artist. I, I think his opinion of himself is higher than my opinion of him, but whatever. But man, oh man. I mean, he's just like self-immolating in in ways that Mel Gibson could only dream of. You know, I was going to say, maybe part of the reason that Kanye has gone off this deep end is that he's playing golf with Mel every Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's bowling. I could have it wrong. Bowling. I actually don't. I, I don't know. Bowling actually, with Mel. 
this is fake news, but there is something wonderful, I think, about the visual of like Kanye and Mel Gibson having their own sort of like anti-Semitic bowling league. You know, yeah. like, the, like the, I can just see them like with their, uh, you know, their their official like bowling shirts, and it's some sort it's, of like yeah. see if they can get like Kevin Sorbo and Chachi to join. <laughs> That'd be quite the anti-Semite uh, bowling team. Yes. Well, uh, Kanye may may not come back from this. Uh, I'm sure another agency will pick him up. Uh, I, I mean, think. It, I mean, someone's gonna certainly. I mean, in the same way that Mel Gibson has still had a film career after oh, and, what he did, and, and returns. Mel Gibson just had a movie come out recently. So, but if you notice, I, I mean, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on any of it. It's like Mel Gibson's star just violently sank to the bottom of the ocean. And so he would do stuff like The Beaver mm. or uh, what was that film that Johnny Durango shot? Uh, the Old Man. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Durango, who was on the show a long time ago. Yeah, uh, we're, we're, we're overdue for having back. But hell yeah. Now after, now after we talk about Mel Gibson, he's going to be like, I'm not coming back on that we show. Gotta, we got to have Johnny <laughs> back at some point. Well, I mean, you know, the, the thing is, like, it's it's not that Mel Gibson became a bad actor or a bad director or a bad anything. But I feel like when no. you go and, and he his he tirade, in the pool. His tirade wasn't just anti-Semitic, it was anti-black. It was, uh, you know, it, it came up that he had a history of abusing women and he called a cop sugar tits. Like, um, <laughs> you know what? That's a, that's a term of affection. It really is. I, I, I guess, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, it definitely dinged up his career a lot. And, you know, with Kanye, the question is, does it ding up his career? The fact that he's trying to buy uber right-wing racist social yeah. media platform Parler. Yeah, uh, all this, all the weird stuff he's suddenly doing, and he was on this podcast saying a bunch of this anti-Semitic stuff. And there's a video feed you can watch the hosts, kind of like. At one point, Kanye says, "Well, I don't think all Jews are bad," and one of the hosts is like, "Yeah, you need to say that. Say that again. Say that louder." <laughs> and oh God, I, I haven't watched any of this, so you are you are now giving me the first, uh, the, my first taste of it. I'll have to go watch it after uh, after this podcast. It's really interesting because. Yeah, I mean, it's just like some poison got into his brain and it's like we were all kind of willing to go with it when he was just, you know, wishing death on Pete Davidson. Mm. And you go, well, Pete Davidson's with his ex, but not anymore, not anymore. But but also it's like, should we have been okay with him, you know, making a music video in which he decapitates Pete Davidson like eh. Like maybe uh, maybe it's I mean I don't know maybe we're you and I are giving him sun sunlight right now that he he can grow with just in our own little way but I just kind of feel like in the entertainment business we'll put up with a lot of character quirks but there are certain lines that you just don't you can't walk back and I sort of feel like blatant racism is one of them and oh, uh, yeah. one of the other things about him too is that in an interview with I think it was Piers Morgan he claimed that he pitched. Django Unchained to Jamie Foxx and Quentin Tarantino as a video for his song Gold Digger. And it's like, even I, who have who had nothing to do with any of this, knows that uh, Tarantino actually wrote Django Unchained with Will Smith in mind in the lead, not Jamie Foxx. And Jamie Foxx is in that video. But it's like, why are you taking credit for stuff you really didn't do? You know, like, what the hell? I feel like he needs help. And I actually feel like being a billionaire enables you to refuse help. And he needs help more than he ever probably has in his life. Uh, Let's just ask Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, so Ben, I, I think that we have uh, exhausted the the Kanye uh, conversation. Not for as long. even, kinda, but yeah, let's let's go ahead and move on to the interview. <laughs> let's get on to the interview with Eric Bronco. All right. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Eric Bronco, welcome back to the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for having me, Ben. Hey, you have got a new series called Let the Right One In, which, of course, I would say is either inspired or in some ways sort of a new adaptation of the original IP to the uh, 2008 Swedish film, which I loved. I thought it was great. And I know that it got remade in his American movie. I never saw that one. Don't, I don't know how that was. But, <laughs> but I've been watching yours and I'm about halfway through the series and I love it. It is so good. It is that's so, awesome. That's great to hear. It is so much fun. So, was it as much fun to shoot? Was it as much fun to make this thing? How did this whole process go? Yeah, I mean, so I saw the original movie totally like walked in blind. Didn't know what it was about. I hadn't seen the trailer. Friend was like, "Oh, I'm gonna, gonna go see this Swedish vampire movie." I was like, "Great, see you there." 
and walked out of the theater like completely blown away. It's like a top 10 movie for me, hands down. Isn't that um, isn't that great? Isn't it so much fun to actually go into a movie completely blind, not seeing the trailer, not knowing anything about it? I mean, if it pays off, if it pays off, if it's one of those like great movies, I feel like it's so much better than actually being hyped about seeing a movie because you've got no expectations. I mean, totally. yeah, well, who, who, your expectations are, are nothing. So that, that exactly, I, exactly. Yeah. Like some of the best like movie going experiences are, are those movies where I was like, ah, I'm going to I got to kill two hours. This looks interesting. <laughs> and then I walked in and like. Just have a great time. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so Let the Right One In, I think, was a visceral experience for a lot of people. It is not what you expect. You don't expect child vampires. And I don't think, really feel like I'm giving anything away since now this has been out there in the culture and the zeitgeist for, for certainly long enough. But what I love about your new series is you're not just telling that story again. You've got a new story and it's set in New York. And you've got an incredible cast. Why don't you give our listeners the really short Cliff Notes version of this new series? Yeah. So the new series, for those of you that have not seen the original movie, uh, the original movie is about a little girl that moves in to an apartment complex and befriends kind of a lonely, bullied boy. You find out kind of through the course of the movie that the little girl is not a little girl at all. She is a hundreds of year old vampire who you think might be her grandfather or whoever else is kind of her handler because she can't move through the world as a child. And the movie is kind of a, on the surface, kind of a love story between these two kids, but also a kind of very predatory kind of tale. So with that as the basis, our show takes place much earlier kind of in the timeline. This girl has only been a vampire for 10 years, so she's in reality about 22. But kind of the way it treats vampire lore is that when you become a vampire, your growth is stunted, not just physically, but also somewhat mentally. So she doesn't act like a 22-year-old. She kind of acts like a child. Um, she is still, you know, a child. So she's, you know, she's relatively new to being a vampire, and her father is the one kind of going out and collecting blood for her at night and keeping her safe and making sure that she doesn't become the monster that she has the potential to become. Tell our, our listeners a little bit about your approach to this, because now you've got some original aspects of the IP, some inspired aspects that you're inheriting. Did you look at the visual style of the original or the remake at all to influence what you're doing? Or did you just decide that you had a... How, how did the look come about? Let's put it that way. Yeah, the look came about... I know the first movie by heart, and I have seen several times and still very much enjoy the second movie. Hoyt von Hoytzen was shot the first one. It's kind of the movie that put him on the map. And then Greg Frazier shot the American remake, which is kind of the movie that put him on the map. So it was, you know, it's some large footsteps to, uh, to follow. Um, I've never heard of these guys. No, uh, of course. Yeah, I'm right. Kidding. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, um, well, that's a wonderful feather in your cap, too, that they entrusted you to this project after, yeah. after those luminaries, of course, uh, did, totally. did the first two. So, so that's wonderful. Yeah, the short answer is I watched both movies a couple times. The Swedish one kind of as a refresher because I know it so well. And the American one, you know, I had seen it a few times when it came out and liked it, but I hadn't seen it in, you know, in 10 years or so. And it's interesting. I feel like the the Swedish one is a little more like austere and pulled back in its cinematography. Very cool, very sparse. The American one is uh, was shot anamorphic. And so there's some of that texture in the image that I don't feel like was there in the original. And the American one feels very warm in its kind of like sodium vapor nights. It's a wonderful color palette, too, though. When you're going through the conceptualization of this, are you working with the costume designer and the production designer to try to figure out your color palette for all of this? Can you talk a little bit about how you settled on this blue green and this this sort of look? Yeah, I mean, everything everything kind of stemmed from this idea that that the outside world is not safe and kind of the safe place is in in the home so the apartment the home yeah, is yeah. very yeah the home is very warm you know tungsten light and outside is very kind of cool blue green except for the kitchen sink has a light kind of where he does his like you know the father kind of cleans out his blood jug and stuff we did put like a really green kind of like you know light over that to bring a little bit of that into into the house I was particularly struck by how cohesive everything feels and how it there was such a great job of world building and that I know this is a pandemic production with children and there's so many different ways that this could have been a incredibly difficult and arduous series to shoot. But I think that there's something that that's in my brain about when I'm really enjoying something, 
I think that everyone who made it must have also been enjoying the process of making it, too. But I know that's not always the case. I know sometimes it can be really <laughs> difficult and it can be very cold. And now with all of the additional aspects from COVID protections and everything else, if you were to put a, a scale of one to 10 on production, because I feel like uh, if, if 10 is just super easy, everything is slotting into place exactly how it should be. And one is like, oh, my God, what am I doing here? How smooth was a production like this? Which it looks to me like it must have been amazing, but but I don't know. I mean, you know, we had, there were some crazy, crazy challenging days. I'll speak about the pilot in particular. We shot the pilot, which takes place in the winter at night. We shot on the summer solstice. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, <laughs> the longest sunny day of the year you guys shot. So, uh, which hilariously, the, uh, the year before on the winter solstice, I was shooting a summer day exterior. That's awesome. Uh, and then six months later, I'm shooting a... Uh, a winter night exterior on the summer solstice. So, I mean, that meant that... Um, That's the reality of the job, though. DPs are yeah. always asked to do this. It's like, hey, guess what? We're shooting nights and you need to do all day uh, interiors. Or guess what? We have to do a day exterior. Or guess what? We have to... So on the exactly. on the longest day of the year, you had a mostly night shoot. <laughs> we had an entirely night shoot yeah. with a minor who had to be out at midnight. Wow. But had being a night exterior meant that we couldn't start shooting until 9.30 or so. You know, the sun is set at like 8.45 and then it's still quite blue in the sky for like another 45 minutes. That's right. So we had essentially like two and a half hours to shoot everything with this kid who is a phenomenal talent. And she Madison really is. Baez is her name. She's amazing. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, those night exteriors with the kids were some of the most rushed things I've ever shot. And uh, I mean, it's really a testament to our director, Seath, and the actors that we were able to pull it off as well as, well as we did. Another, actually, I'm, I'll dive into one more insane shoot, yeah, was yeah. they uh, end up going to Coney Island, which was another, I think the kids had to be at 10 and the sun set at like 7.30. God. <laughs> uh, and we, you know, we're out in Coney Island with four, maybe 400 extras. Yeah. You know, we, it was still the winter time. I was like just coming out of winter. It was like April maybe, but it wasn't open yet. And we're so they opened up Coney Island. They turned on all the lights of the park we were shooting at, of Dino's, uh, which is where the Wonder Wheel is, and the two parks on either side. And we had to get all our Coney Island work done in like with these kids in like two hours or so. It was, I think, a five camera day. Wow. Uh, one of our operators, uh, Catherine Castro, <laughs> was roaming around getting B-roll while we shot the scenes. We were shooting the kids up in the Wonder Wheel and so that our cameras wouldn't see her, we uh, had her followed around with a hot dog umbrella. Uh, <laughs> she's running around, getting like handheld B-roll. <laughs> sure, we had somebody holding a, like a, you know, a nascent hot dog umbrella over her. So that if the cameras ever looked down, we wouldn't see, you know, our crew shooting. You, you know what? Uh, when you have such a, a truncated schedule with kids, though, uh, do you find that bringing in the extra cameras is the way to try to get your coverage as done as quickly as possible. You've got to get as much as you can in there. So you say it's a five camera day. Can I assume that, uh, you know, A through E cameras were rolling all the time? Then when it wasn't just like, oh, it's a camera and then we've got maybe a second angle or we've got the specialty thing. No, you're, you're covering it five different ways. Yeah. I mean, days like that, it's one of those things where you kind of look at this impossible task and you're like, okay, you know, we scouted, I think I want to say maybe three times we were there, you know, boots on the ground in the spacing, phones out, cameras out picking angles, things like that. And then back in the production office, we have a four foot overhead map and we're dropping cameras and the art department of production design saying, okay, I'm going to have a camera here. You know, one of the, our intro into Coney Island is they kind of like walk from the boardwalk through the amusement park and land at like a strongman game. And so we kind of had to strategically not only place cameras so they can see each other, but, you know, we talked to an art department about bringing in things that would block, you know, if you can build me something that'll hide camera B from camera C, we can get the whole thing in like three takes. So it started as a steady cam shot, which then pivoted, turned, it became a, like a profile dolly with the steady cam falling back a little bit, just out of frame of our other shot. They land in the coverage, other cameras run in and everything's on rolling tripods. It's, you know. 
Yeah. A well-oiled machine. uh, Okay, so uh, there's obviously a trade-off when you go with that many cameras to cover, and you're covering so that you can try to maximize the time between setups, because if you've got all the cameras that can be built at once and you can rehearse it a few times and then go, that's all the ways that you didn't have to take that move that I'm just giving a little explainer here for anyone who doesn't work on set and doesn't under, understand uh, the time saving aspect here of exactly what you just described being able to uh, strategically plan things and some shots get ruined because the other cameras are there you, you obviously can't show that but there's a trade off of the uh, initial prep for all those locations and then the rehearsal because it gets much more complicated than using a one camera. If you have your druthers, if you have your choice between taking larger, complicated sequences where someone has to move from point A to point B, is it more satisfying to to break out the multi-cameras and choreograph this thing? Or would you prefer to have all the time in the world and move and change and tweak lights for each camera individually? Because I find that there's different opinions on this. Where do you fall on the the spectrum? I think it's probably a project-specific thing. I think, you know, you get different things from both. Do you know what I mean? There's something like deeply satisfying about, you know, having a, a character walk up and land in like a perfectly lit close up. And you're like, you know, this is exactly how I want this face lit. <laughs> you know, it's like a very satisfying thing. But it turns more into, you know, like a sport, team sports when you're doing this kind of like crazy five camera setup, two take scene or something like that, where it's like your lighting is not going to be. I'm not going to use the word perfect because, you know, what is perfect, but it's perfect. You know, you know you it's make compromises. <laughs> you know I mean, you make compromises, you know, in certain places kind of for the greater good. And I will say that there is like a rush of camaraderie amongst the crew when it's like, you know, we have this thing that should not work. When you look at it on paper, it shouldn't be possible. And we show up at two in the afternoon and we build cameras and we rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. And we feel comfortable and we go to lunch. You know, everybody's at lunch with the jitters and then you come back in, you rehearse a couple more times as the sun's going down. And then, you know, the second that sky is kind of blue, you start shooting, knowing that, you know, your first two takes are kind of your like imperfect lighting, kind of still a little bit daytime wastings. But then, you know, you get maybe a couple takes and then you just nail it. And, you know, you can feel that kind of, you feel the rhythm, you feel the build of tension and then release and celebration when you get it. It's always nice when you do a scene and like the crew is clapping. At the end of it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's a different, it's a different thing than, you know, this like kind of like one camera perfect methodical thing. Yeah, you, you pull it off. When you pull off the trick shot like that, everyone kind of knows like you, what they just witnessed, what they just got yeah. done. And then it's like, yeah, yeah. sometimes you got to you know, rely on the script super or someone who's there to go like, okay, no, we didn't cross the line. Uh, a and B is going to work. All right, that's great. Yeah, we got all the pieces. Hey, all right, and celebrate. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. But uh, yeah, I think that in a lot of productions, particularly scripted production, you don't always get the chance to pull that off. And uh, it, what an incredible cast. You, I mean, Damien Bashir, Annika Noni-Rose, and the kids are incredible too madison and ian and and nick stalk like coming out of nowhere i hadn't seen him in ages what an incredible cast can you talk about how satisfying it is to see such high caliber actors in front of your lens every day when you're working on this yeah i mean it's amazing first of all you know it's just enjoyable to watch their performances every day it's just enjoyable to be at work and be at the monitor and just watch it as an audience member you know, sometimes you have to stop and be like, okay, okay, okay. Like, stop watching the scene. <laughs> you got to pay attention to the lighting here. Yeah. Was there a dolly <laughs> track in that shot? We got to like, pay attention here. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's amazing. And I think, you know, from a cinematography perspective, actors of that caliber, I think, challenge you to be better because, you know, you know, they've been on set with the best of the best and you need to match that energy. I like to have a open, trusting, and well-respected relationship with the actors that I work with. I think a lot of that trust is built on my end, especially when you're shooting things in like a slightly unconventional way, like we are a bit on this show, at least for kind of TV coverage. It doesn't quite look like a, like a network procedural. <laughs> in snow. No, far um, from it. That that is that is not at all the thinking. And and you've got all like the tropes of a you know police procedural. Like there, you've got you yeah. know detectives and homicide and you know and bodies and stuff. But it doesn't it doesn't feel like those procedural shows at all. No, it it, 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 <laughs> yeah, it exactly. really does. It feels like something wholly into itself, which I think is is great. So yeah, uh, I'll I'll kind of back it up and go through you know the way the a scene is shot. So. We come in, say it's the first hour of the morning. I will have spoken to our rigging crew. So kind of broad stroke lighting will be in place when we show up. Uh, if we're on the stage, we have our daytime look set, our nighttime look set, things like that. 
you know, at 7 a.m. or whatever it is, the look is based on the call sheet, based it's on roughed. what the scene is. You've got a rough. It's roughed in. Yeah. At that point, actors come to set, sides in hand. We do a read through of the scene. The scene gets blocked. I'll sidebar, confer with the director. Uh, we have our shot list. And any if there's something that is not working for what our shot list was, I'll quickly have a sidebar with the director of, okay, that's not quite going to work. The way, you know, she walks across the room isn't quite going to work with our plan. How do you want to fix that? Do you want to fix it on the block? Do you want to fix it on our end? The director will make that call. The AD will say, okay, what are we starting with? Uh, we'll say, let's start with one camera on a wide dolly and another camera ready for when she crosses. It can become her close-up. Okay, break. Everybody goes away. Actors go get ready. Lighting department comes in, lights. We get our cameras framed up and roughed in. And then kind of this crew goes to work. And when the actors come back, I, just a personal kind of, you know, belief of mine, I want the actors to feel like it's still their space. I want it to still feel the way it should feel for them as an actor, rather than have them, you know, cross over a multitude of, of things to get to their mark. And they can only hit that mark if they're off by, you know, six inches, the shot's ruined. You know, and I do that DP thing where I'm like, okay, and I flip this, you know, spin the camera. And it's it's everything's fucked. Um, you know, I want them to, you know, feel like they, you know. When they, I, I appreciate a little drama. That's great. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I, I angrily throw my scarf over the other shoulder and I, you know, I storm off. Um, You've rumpled my ascot. Uh. <laughs> so, uh, you know. That's part of the way I build trust with actors is, is they come back on set and they do two takes and they're like, you know what? I think I really should sit down. Mm. You know, I go, yeah, cool. Great. Sit down. I'm still looking for it. Let me do a, a two second tweak on this light rather than it's not a 20 minute change or I don't say, I'm sorry, the lighting, I'm not prepared for you to sit down. Like, you know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Um, which is a very, you know, a very real thing. Yeah, um, oh, yeah. You know, when, yeah, as parodied quite well in Living in Oblivion, if you ever saw uh, Chad Palomino <laughs> totally. decide, you know what, I've decided this whole scene's going to take place on the floor. So, what? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, this is an obscure reference to, for our listeners. If you haven't seen uh, Living in Oblivion, go see that. Go, go see that. Yeah, you'll be in on all the jokes. So, But you, you're right. If an actor suddenly decides, you know what, I don't want to do this standing here i want to do this over here and you're not prepared for that if you haven't lit the shot in that they might be standing completely in darkness and uh i've seen that happen more than once on really really big shows where an actor suddenly decided their creative inspiration was to walk you know nearly off the set or to walk to some place or do something in a place that wasn't a thing i have to say that though uh, i think there's some discipline and then when you have really good collaborators the relationship between the actors and the camera department i want to say is like almost no other because it is a dance that goes on every time the camera's rolling, even I would say when it's a lock-off shot because you've got focus pullers and all the other stuff going on. And if your lighting isn't prepared for this, then it's it's just not going to work. There's got to be a lot of serious trust and respect that goes on. Uh, at least, at least that, yeah. that's always been my experience. You know, I can always kind of tell when trust is building, there's always like a moment where like an actor will make eye contact with me. Or they'll come, you know, going back to kind of like the sitting or standing example, you know, they'll come over to me quietly and be like, are you cool if I uh, move if I sit down? And you know what I mean? And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, great. I'm all set for it. And I think that's, you know, and they're like, okay, cool, thanks. <laughs> and, but no one, you know what I mean? They came to me first about it because they don't, you know, we're, we've built a relationship to the point where they don't want to put me on the spot mm. if yeah. they decide to, do you know what I mean? Oh, if yeah. If they want to switch something up. It, yeah. Um, if you're not prepared, then you can't follow them. That takes blown. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that trust kind of builds slowly and gradually where not only, not only am I doing my work with them in mind and, and their ease of work in mind, but they're also, you know, conscientiously doing their work with my ease of work in mind as well. And then, you know, when you get into that place, then you're in a good rhythm. And conversely, if you don't have that rhythm, if you don't have that trust, if you've got an actor who is deciding that they're going to uh, just kind of do what they want, or maybe they like... Uh, I'm only speaking from personal experience because I worked on a bunch of, you know, really, really crappy indie films with a lot of actors who'd maybe never acted before. We all have. <laughs> it's a really different experience. It's like it's I think it's really hard for uh, an inexperienced actor to fake that set acumen and that ability to work with all the different uh, departments. And um, I would say uh, working with camera uh, probably uh, in some ways because the camera's rolling and you only have those moments to get it right. And especially in the era of film, but really no difference now, you have to have a 
you have to have a plan, and the everyone has to be in on that plan in some way. Otherwise, it's just failure. And I know this might sound yeah. a little bit nebulous or, or abstract, but like, have you ever had the experience where the actors wouldn't just uh, do their thing or try to develop that rapport? Oh my god! Or, yeah, worked on. I mean, you don't I'm, have to name I'm, any names, but you know, tell I me how, name, how, I, how do you deal with? I stuff could like name that? all the names. I know you, you could. You wouldn't know. <laughs> 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 the difference between between being an actor who's uh, who's known and uh, you know and oh, being an actor who's not. Well, I'll, is, I'll, uh... <laughs> I, I worked with an A-list actor when it was one of the very first yeah. things in their career. And they didn't have any of that, so I, I will I will never name go. name them. But you know, it's a, right. <laughs> everyone starts somewhere. So uh, how how do you deal with like I, I think a lot of people out there they have to be able to approach diplomatically the conversation with the talent what it is that they need and how you're going to get what you need from the talent how, how do you deal with that if you've got something that's not working you know i think i don't know if this is going to answer your question but i'll, I'll tell a brief story uh, about an unnamed actor wildly talented very well known but made his name in television mm. pre kind of hbo days i think tv was a little different i'm i'm saying pre hbo days I mean, pre nineteen seventy five. I mean, around a long time. I was saying in the like pre, you know, pre kind of like Sopranos mm, TV okay, Renaissance yes. when like TV started being shot like and looking like movies. Things were done, you know, I think a little differently, and it was less of a cinematic experience. Mm -hmm. um, had an actor who kind of came up in TV. We're doing a movie, and it was kind of one of these very. Uh, austere shots where things kind of really kind of play out in like a medium master and then they come and they sit down across from each other and you know and we're not changing you know they come in they come sit down and they land in a laser over uh close up on the other character and i put a tape mark down the ground you know this is like this is our line to say don't cross this line like if you cross this line the other actor's shot is busted yeah yeah point out the line here you know hey this is how what this shot evolves into and so if you come in and lean that way in your chair that's a bust. And he looks at me with this kind of like, you know. Indignation. <laughs> yeah. And, it's, and, he, and he's like, the camera's not, you don't have a slider. And I don't, oh. and I don't know, I don't know where I got the, uh, the, the chutzpah to respond in this way. But I said, no, 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 I don't. We're, we're making a movie. <laughs> you know this guy with the tires probably you know three magnitudes of my age uh yeah. kind of looks me up and down and he kind of smirks and he's like okay all right we're it. so here here's the line i came across <laughs> that's it and he was like okay great here we go uh and then kind of after that interaction which i uh, you know could have gone oh it could have gone a couple, couple of different ways yeah uh, but that but, but, but you, you know, know what you stood your he ground was kind of like okay all right this guy's you know uh we're, we're gonna be okay uh, that's awesome. That's an awesome story. I I, I love that. Uh, yeah. So I am actually taking this this interview in a slightly different course than some of our other ones because uh, one, you and I know each other, and I always enjoy our conversations. I th I think this is a lot of fun. But I think, uh, and we're a little guilty of this on the podcast lately. We've been like happy talk, happy talk. Boy, this is such a great project. But you are such a dynamic communicator and open book that I feel like it's really fun to get into some of this minutia and to talk about some of these other things. Are there any other stories that are similar to the one you just told regarding the, you know, being the young guy on set with sort of the old guard that you've had that experience before where it's like, wow, you know, I have to defend myself here. Or I have to let people know that I am serious and a professional and that perhaps my young appearance has nothing to do with that. And I, I am wise beyond my years. Have you uh, have you encountered <laughs> such such things? Things before yeah i mean it's been my entire uh, my entire career i started i mean i started working on set professionally when i was i think 19 mm -hmm. and then you know we were working on i was working on indie little indie features in new york where like nobody knew anything so i kind of quickly got put in a position of leadership i mean within like a year or two i was i was key gripping projects i was gaffing projects i was a gaffer for a long time you know i was probably gaffing when i was 21 gaffing features you know what i mean which is like i grew a beard yeah. So you, people would, you know what I mean? Like, oh, oh, yes. That, that is uh, a, a very typical, that's a very typical <laughs> tactic I know of men, yep. at least in this industry, trying to, you know, because there is this stereotype of the grizzled DP and the grizzled gaffer mm. for that much. It's like, oh, you want that guy because he's been around a lot. But, you know, that's yeah. re that's really difficult for to play against that, that prejudice or preconception when you're the young guy coming up. And especially you're really talented because someone looks you up and down and goes like, oh, yeah, what, what could, yeah, yeah, come on. How many? production days or hours could you have under your belt but 
let me tell you, working the grind, especially like in indie cinema, like I know that you did, like in New York, yep. you you get really good really fast, or you get chewed up and spit out. <laughs> so that's oh, absolutely. There's, yeah. I there's, mean, no, there's no in between. <laughs> and I have a lot of close friends that I used to work with that are not in this industry anymore. I think we um, all do. There there is a certain legitimacy that comes from longevity. Just by the fact that you are still here, you know, all these years later, it means that you are actually doing something very right. So that is. Uh, I did it when I was probably. Uh, this, telling this story might get me in trouble. I'm not going to name names. Okay. I worked with a DP who was very much one of this. I don't know how I got in this job, but he was probably in his mid seventies, maybe early eighties, you know, had those, had those letters after his name. Mm-hmm. I think it was the first ASCDP I worked with. Mm. So I, I came to set and I was like, oh my, this is gonna be amazing. Mm. And this guy just didn't care at all. And like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I kind of learned on that day, I was like, you know, if you just stick it out long enough, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're going to be okay. Um, which, you know, I think, I think at this point, uh, at this point, maybe I have, but it's, I mean, it's interesting being kind of the young guy because I was the youngest guy on every set I was on. And then I was the oldest guy at every set I was on. And then I kind of broke into like the new, the next this, level, you know, new level and i'm back to being the young guy on yeah yeah <laughs> and so, like, uh eric i know that we are running out of time but i want to tell everyone that let the right one in is now now playing on showtime you can go watch this on showtime it started on uh, october 9th there's several episodes that are that are out now i i know i've been watching them and everyone should go watch it because damn it's fun it's really really good and it's perfect for october so if you're in a, you know a halloween sort of vibe or anything like that then absolutely you should be watching this go watch uh, let the right one in eric where can people find you in the online world if there is a place that you exist is, is can people look you up somewhere are you on social? Generally, uh, generally Instagram is Instagram. where to find me. Okay, Eric Bronco is my handle on Instagram. E R I C B R A N C O. And uh, there. We'll, put it, we'll put it in the show notes at Cam Noir. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show again. It was great having Thank you back. You. Always great seeing you. All right, that was Eric Bronco. Eric, that was so much fun. I'm so glad uh, you were able to come back on the show, and I can't wait to uh, see what you do next. And everybody, if you have Showtime, check out the Let the Right One In series. And for God's sakes, go watch the original Let the Right One In. Shot, I believe, by Hoyt Van Hoytema, if I'm not mistaken. You are correct. God damn it, what a brilliant movie. Yeah, it's really good. All right, Ben, it is bill paying time. We got some bills to pay. Uh, All right. And we got to thank our fine friends over at Aerie. Aerie, they, they make cameras they make lighting you may have heard of them yeah uh, but but i think a lot of people don't know that they actually make also a lot of lenses lenses that you can buy some lenses just for rental and uh, they have a new rental facility in new york that just opened and they tease they haven't announced it yet but if you go to the fd times uh, instagram there is a picture of the new heroes lenses from airy which appear to be rental only and there is a third geared ring. So, of course, in a prime lens, typically you have a, a ring for your aperture, you know, you set your T-stop. You have a gear ring for your focus. So, you know, close focus to infinity. So you have the ability to make sure your, your image is in focus. This prime lens has a third geared ring towards the front, and it looks like it is to adjust the element spacing inside the lens, the air gap, as it were. So, you can change the look of the lens on the fly without having to take the lens apart. So what do you mean change the look of the lens? I don't follow this at all. Okay, so it, it looks like according to this photo here that's on the FD Times Instagram, and uh, there is a witness mark, which basically gives you your setting. It tells you where it is. And then there's a bunch of numbers between what looks like zero and at least eight. And if you were adjusting the air gap element spacing inside the lens, you're physically moving elements into or out of alignment from each other. And this can change the characteristics of the lens. It can change where your focus fall off is. It can change uh, how resolute or how sharp. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of things you can do. If I was this many years old before I knew that this was even a thing you could do. Well, it's not usually a thing you can do on the outside of a lens. It's not something you can do on the fly. Typically, if you want to make a lens worse, you have to take it apart, stick some shims in there and push and pull the elements into a position that's less ideal. Clearly, Aerie has come up with a plan here to be able to do it on the fly. So I don't know what happens if you rack in and out the 
coherence of this lens, making it uh, the the images more resolute or more contrasty or or, or whatever. Because uh, once you start moving things around, all bets are off. You can completely ruin a lens. My guess is they probably chose some very specific characteristics that this adjustment controls, and I don't know how it works. All I see is this photo, but it's something that I think is going to get a lot, a lot of buzz here in the I, coming weeks. I just want to say that. I never heard of this until you just started doing this ad read right yeah. now. And now this is the only thing I've ever wanted to put my hands on in my entire life. I want to see what this does. <laughs> well, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes on Cam Noir to the photo so people can can check it out and see see what I'm talking about here. There's three geared rings on a prime lens. It's a 57 millimeter and it looks really cool. So I wish we could see what was in it. 57 millimeter? Yep. 57 millimeter. Is that... I've never encountered. Am, am I? Did I just start doing this now? I've never even encountered a fifty-seven millimeter. You lens. have, if you've ever used a zoom lens, you can, you can adjust the. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Of course, yes. I have zoomed through fifty-seven millimeters. Maybe I've even parked it at fifty-seven millimeters, but I've never encountered a fifty-seven millimeter prime lens, much less one where I could uh, mess with coherence. <laughs> Yes, that's uh, that is something that you can uh, that you can do with this lens. It looks like, but I haven't seen it in person. I don't know exactly how it works, but you know, this was an ad for for Airy before we we started this banter back and forth. And I still think it is an ad for for Airy. Airy's doing it never stopped yeah. being an ad for Airy. I just want to see this lens. <laughs> it's, it's very innovative. It's really not like anything else out there. And I'm sure that in the coming days and weeks there will be more information available. And another cool thing from Airy. Surprise, surprise! Airy did something innovative and cool. There you go. Crazy. And now, short ends. So, Ben, uh, it is short end time of the show. What is your obsession? Assuming it's not the Airy Heroes lenses. What, what is your. I mean, it is now. That's all I want. When you get one of these in, can I come in and play with it? I just want to see absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. welcome to it. I, I will ask, you know, we're going to have an, an Airy event in November, and uh, I will ask the people at Airy in person well, what's going on. Maybe someone, if they, it's not out by then, maybe someone can give me some more information. I. I just turned into Huel Hauser over this lens. I'm very excited about this hey, lens. Hey, check out that lens. We're That's here to see exciting. historic flagpoles and lenses. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone not in Southern California in the 80s or 90s or early 2000s, Huel Hauser was a uh, PBS host who walked around with a very distinctive voice. And uh, there are is uh, some documentaries about him. He had a show called California's Gold. And in fact, if you go to YouTube and... Google California's gold, you'll get more Hulhauser than you know what to do with. Very, very, uh, uh, yes. Let's just say that he could come across the most mundane thing ever, which was not a third ring on a 57 millimeter lens, by the way. <laughs> and he could, and he would find unbounded enthusiasm for that thing, whatever it was. It's really true. He was enthusiastic about whatever you put in front of him. I remember watching him get palpable about date shakes in Palm Springs. Nice. Yeah. So they'll make you regular. So let me, uh, so. My short end this week is a, is a horror movie. Surprise, mm. surprise. That's a first. Uh, Terrifier 2, which what? Uh, I, will, I will start by saying I haven't seen it yet. Oh. But Terrifier 2 is the newest film that school marmish parents group kinds of people and uh, pearl clutching uh, news outlets. Like if you Google it, you'll find Fox Detroit horror film Terrifier 2 is causing viewers to puke, faint in theater, producer warns of graphic violence. <laughs> oh my God, that you cannot pay for that publicity. People are going to so flock this, to the theater to see that now. This movie was made for $250,000, which is one order of magnitude more than its predecessor, the first Terrifier, had. <laughs> it was made for $25,000. Wow. This was made for $250,000, and I, I'm not avoiding it. I just haven't had a chance to see it, but I feel like I have to say something about it because, well, firstly, a friend of mine, Steve Barton, is one of the producers on it, and I mm. could not be more excited for Steve, but... Uh, how long has it been since we've had a new slasher film bad guy? And now we have Art the Clown. And and I feel like the first Terrifier didn't do it, but this one did. On a $250,000 budget, this movie has already made like $5.1 million. Wow. And it's been in the top 10 for like the last month. What? Oh, my gosh. And it's kind of a little engine that could kind of a thing. Stephen King, no less than Stephen King commented on it. And uh, Steve told me it's a pretty extreme movie. Like they do some pretty dark shit, but I'm both excited about it. And also like the Marmish people who feel that horror movies are destroying our brains will never learn officially because all they want to do is, is tell you how this stuff rots your brain, which is like telling a 14 year old that they must seek this movie out. 
that nothing will be better than seeing this movie that some oldster told them was going to ruin their mind and again i haven't seen it i can't really comment on it i saw the first one i uh, when i found out the first one had been made for twenty five thousand dollars, i was blown away because it looked like it was like at least a half a million dollar kind of movie at mm. least minimum and it's because the director does like all his own special effects makeup and stuff like he's basically does everything uh his name is damien leone and uh i have not met him i hear he's a cool guy but anyway, it's not a big deal that horror movies have been occupying a big space in October in the in the theaters. What's interesting is that even Halloween Ends started at number one, dropped to number three, and or dropped to number four, I think. And Smile is still kind of holding, I think, at three right now. People are going for non-franchise stuff that they have not. I mean, I guess Terrifier 2 is technically a franchise, but probably for most people who are seeing it, it's the first Terrifier movie they've seen in the theater. Yeah, or maybe their first Terrifier movie ever. <laughs> maybe they didn't see the first one. Yeah. So so what is uh, your short end this week? Well, uh, this has been sort of an ongoing uh, obsession for me. It's called Welcome to Wrexham. Are you familiar with this? I'm not. So it turns out, this is true, Ryan Reynolds, famous movie star, television star, and entrepreneur behind, you know, Mint Mobile and Aviation mm-hmm. Gin, got together with Rob McElhenney, who is, of course, uh, one of the creators of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, star of that show. They got together and bought a soccer team in Wales. And to go along with buying the soccer team, they documented the entire process. And that is now a, a TV series on FX called Welcome mm-hmm. to Wrexham. And... I binged like the first three or four episodes. I could not get enough of it. It was so entertaining, had so much heart. And in some ways, it kind of feels like the real Ted Lasso. It's not Ted Lasso. It's not trying to be Ted Lasso, but it kind of feels like it. And they make soccer or football as how much of the world uh, refers to it. Um, accessible to anyone and makes you feel like you are there part of the the journey and i like soccer i like it in theory i enjoy certainly watching some soccer but i do not i would not consider myself a hardcore fan i don't go out of my way to to watch premier league i don't go out of my way to watch the local uh, you know u.s leagues but that being said i'm loving welcome to wrexham and i actually feel more inspired now to support my local my local teams. So I got to say that they don't treat it like a typical documentary. They kind of mix it up and they throw in different styles of episodes. And it's just a lot of fun. Everything about it made me think I would not like it. And I love it. So it's been really good. Mm. And I can't I can't wait now to to finish out the season. I'm, I'm very excited. I wonder if I should take the challenge because it takes a lot to make me care about sports. Yeah. Well, uh, I think you might like this one because it's really an underdog story and it's a great one. It's a great underdog story. And there's some very, I mean, extremely charismatic people behind all of this who are really trying to clear their hearts in the right place. And they want to do some things that previous owners of this particular football club were not able to do. And so, hmm. uh, so yeah, I got to say, it's entertaining. It's fun. Uh, you'll know in the first episode or two if this is going to be for you or not. But if you could get behind something like Bad News Bears, I think you could get behind Welcome to Wrexham. And what makes you think I could get behind Bad News Bears? It's a classic. It's a effing classic. You, you could totally get behind the original Bad News Bears. Did you not get behind it? No, I, I did. I was just giving you a hard time. I was going to say. <laughs> and what a great, satisfying ending in that movie. If you've never seen the original uh, Bad News Bears, uh, get to it. Yeah, I don't, I don't care what you think you know about sports movies. Watch that one. That's one to watch. And then Moneyball. Those are, those are probably that. Moneyball is pretty great. Yeah. Two best baseball movies ever made. Anyway. Okay. So, Ben, I think that just about does it for this week. Uh, where can people track you down if they want to track you down? Well, this week they should track me down at Audible and uh, check out my new series, Catchers, which drops tomorrow, October 27th, my series, Catchers, which is uh, a all super about fun- baseball. It's all about that guy behind home plate. <laughs> it is not about baseball at all. It's about dog catchers versus monsters. Okay. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Stars Billy Gardell from Mike and Molly and Bob Hart's Abishola fame. And uh, I could not be more proud of it. I'm really excited for people to hear it. We're starting to get some responses from people who, who've heard it. And uh, I'm very excited. I'm actually going to be on uh, one of my favorite podcasts. I'm going to be on The Gist on uh, the 27th. 
So the the day that it launches. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm very, very excited. So please go there. And failing that, uh, go to benrock.com and uh, find a link to catchers on my website. That's Or uh, you can also find my Twitter and Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, all that stuff there, too. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? Right now, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. It's uh, 1040 at night, and I'm at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Sponsor of the show. You might have heard it mentioned once or twice during this podcast. <laughs> I, I, I know the, the British lady talks about it at the beginning and the end every time. So She says you're in Hollywood, and actually you're in Burbank. You know I just what? want to point that out. As far as the rest of the world is concerned, th- this really is Hollywood. This, this is Hollywood. I mean, you're kind of near North Hollywood. You know, we, we also share a border with Hollywood. And frankly, if you want to talk about like the production capital, it's Burbank. It's not Hollywood. I agree. I just think that, uh, you know, if we want accuracy, we should bring the British lady back and say from Burbank, from <sighs> gorgeous downtown Burbank. Well, let me tell you, if you zoom out like three notches on Google Map, you can't see a difference between Burbank and Hollywood. It's like it's right there. OK, I don't I don't know that I follow your logic. Uh, I'm just saying that that uh, out, outside of, you know, outside of this 10 mile radius or maybe 15 mile radius, I'll even give you 30 mile radius. Most people can't distinguish Burbank from Hollywood. It's all the same. OK, so what you're saying is you're really in Northridge. So anyway, Ilya, who do no. we have to thank? Uh, let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody kicking the butt organizing our our show getting our, our stuff crap. going yeah we have so many interviews going I'm, I'm doing one of them tomorrow i did one today so yeah, yeah. M- m- more to come uh we gotta thank ben katz who's editing all these Woo. shows together and, and ben will be very glad i did a really good job today i don't think i'll have to edit it at all so that was wonderful and then let's thank Kays Kays alatrachi who was really just on the show like a few weeks ago you can go catch that show and you can listen to and find out all about Kays. and uh, i actually spoke to someone yesterday who said that they felt like they learned a lot about K's that they they never knew before uh, after listening to his his interview. So that was great. Very cool. Well, I mean, like, did they know a lot about K's before that? The, the, the person had been in K's living room, so they they had met. They had. They'd, oh, uh, yeah, so and I can take a, f- a few guesses as to who it was. I, it, it was former fill-in host of the show and guest of the Bill show. Bill Totolo. Yeah. Bill Totolo. Bill Totolo has been in. That K's would have been my living. number one guess. Yes. So. Uh, anyway, and he said he really enjoyed the K's episode. He said that he thought it was Excellent. great. So, anyway, hey, there Bill, you go. how's it going? So, Ben, I think that just about does it. Uh, you want to take us out of here? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.